Welcome to the podcast, People More Interesting Than Me. I'm your host, Michael Strumsky. This week, I'm talking to Erica Welsh. Erica is a lawyer who has helped with immigration, criminal defense, and eviction cases. She talks about why she chooses such a selfless profession and explains how restorative justice changed her view of being a lawyer. Enjoy. With me today, I have Erica Welsh. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Michael. Yeah, we finally did it. We finally set up the time. Lots of text tag. I just want to let you know, I did a very good intro at the beginning of the episode. You're, you're revered and all these good details. <laughs> uh, but I guess explain to the listeners what you're doing currently. And then we're going to work back from the very beginning. Okay, sure. Um, so I, right now, am a housing attorney. I work for a nonprofit in Colorado called the Colorado Poverty Law Project. In a nutshell, uh, try to prevent homelessness before it starts. Uh, try to make sure that people have access to housing justice. Um, so most tenants don't have an attorney when they are up against an eviction. So we want to make sure that people have access to legal services if they need it um, and even if they can't pay for it. So a lot of eviction defense, working with tenants on pretty much any housing issue they might have. That's kind of our uh, our uh, our jam over here at CPLP. Okay. And I, I know we talked about this before, but I don't think I ever asked you, when do you think you actually wanted to become a lawyer? Because I feel like <laughs> when you're in, even when you're in high school and in elementary school, you never hear any kids, and this isn't meant to parade you but like nobody says they want to be a lawyer you know what mm -hmm. i mean like unless yeah. they have like a granddad who watches like matlock or something like all the time well i did grow up on law and order as i mentioned in yes. our uh yes. in the green in in the green room as they call it uh <laughs> on law and order the time okay. i was so young that i didn't understand what death was so when mm -hmm. they would show a deceased person on the screen my parents just told me he was sleeping and i believed them um, but, but yeah, to, to more pointedly answer your question, um, yeah, I think it was a bit of a slower realization for me. Um, I, well, I, so I will say that I do remember being probably, I don't know, eight or nine and being a time to kill the, the movie, not reading the book, uh, though I did read the book later on in life. Um, but seeing Matthew McConaughey give that closing argument <laughs> and, uh, yeah, you can't not feel something when, when you see something like that. Um, so what, I, what do you mean specifically, Matthew McConaughey or his speech? How do you, uh, <laughs> I guess I'd have to say both. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, so I mean, I think I, I certainly had this, you know, I, I guess most kids from a young age have this. As soon as you develop a sense of justice and, and rightness, you know, there's certainly that in the background. But yeah, no, I, I, I was not, as you said, and high school I was not a particularly ambitious person I, I don't know that I really knew what I wanted to do um and, and even throughout college I I didn't really have an inkling that I would be an attorney um I, yeah there, there were a couple moments I think um I I, I remember in in particular uh what, when I was a senior in college I was uh I was in like a senior seminar class one of those small classes where you sit in a circle and you you really get deep. And I remember my professor, 
I, I'm not even quite sure what the subject of the class was. I think it was leadership and meaning and things like that. And and I do remember him saying to us, you know, you're going to hear a lot of people tell you to to do what makes you happy and to and to use that as your guide and to follow that. But I think that you should pay attention not to what makes you happy, but to what makes you angry. Mm-hmm. Um, and pay attention to that and see where that leads you. And um, and and I think you know I I would I would agree with that still today. I I would maybe disagree with parts of it, but but I that certainly led me on this path. I think, and as it does, I think for a lot of attorneys is um, you know tuning into things in the world that seem wrong and unfair, and and you want to do something about it. And and the legal system, for better or for worse, is just the mechanism that we have in a lot of ways to redress those things. So I think that certainly was was a push in that direction. Um, but it was a super circuitous route for me. I uh, so so I thought senior year of college I would you know apply and I I got everything ready to go and then and then I realized that I had that I had been a student since I was four years old and I hadn't not been a student and, and I didn't know who I was as a just a person and so I should probably just t- just take a beat and and be a person not a student for for a time so so I ended up actually deferring all of that for a year um and 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 taking some time to do something else no that makes sense so I guess I, I know you waited a little while to take the bar was that before or after your when you went to India so yeah so well so I took the bar right after law school yeah in terms of the timing of all that so I I actually uh went to India twice and you're right it was kind of my first sort of legal internship all first year law students or most of them will do an internship after their first year uh, during their first summer so yeah so that was the first time that I went to India so that was um in in 2015 after I finished my first year and I was working for a an organization called the Council to Secure Justice. Mm. It's basically a team of social workers and lawyers um, who work mainly with uh, kids who've been victims of child sexual abuse and kind of on the social work side, you know, helping them and their families navigate that. And then also on the victim advocacy side, you know, helping them through the court process. So I, I basically worked, you know, my, my first summer internship for them, kind of analyzing court cases, reading a lot of opinions, um, mainly because they have a very high acquittal rate. That's lawyers speak for people don't get convicted. And so we're trying to figure out why that is. And so I was kind of doing a lot of analysis of opinions and things like that. And um, so that was my, my first summer. And then, and then I went back after law school when I reconnected with my boss who said, you know, we've been working within the criminal justice system, you know, for several years now, and we're kind of interested in making a pivot. Uh, and he told me about this new project that they were starting on restorative justice. I had no idea what that was at the time. But that, yeah, that was, you know, kind of talking about pivotal moments. That was a pretty pivotal moment for me when I went back to India um, and kind of saw this organization really shift the paradigm and their perspective on, on what justice was. Um, and I can, I mean, I can continue on about this for a long time, but. Well, 
two questions I have before I forget them. Yeah, yeah. What made you pick India? So, the, so I went to Pepperdine for law school. And, and part of the reason I was attracted to that school is because they have a global justice program where they allow first-year law students go and do human rights work internationally. And so they have a lot of partnerships where, you know, students can go and, and, and help out. And so the founder of Council of Pure Justice was a Pepperdine alum, John Derby. And so he kind of always had, you know, an open invitation for Pepperdine law students to come and work there. So I, I knew that I wanted to work in a nonprofit. I wanted to work in that space and see what it was like. Um, and so it seemed like a good fit. Um, and, uh, did, did anyone say like talking to you and Pepperdine or your family be like, you're going to India to start? Did, <laughs> did anybody say anything to that? In the way that parents are often the most like nervous about their kids going off and doing something like that. My parents have always been very like open-minded about those kinds of things. And if they are nervous, they don't really let it show. So I didn't get that so much from them. But yeah, I mean, certainly it, it was not, you know, it, it, it was not the most common choice, probably. So there is a lot of human rights work that's going on in, um, in, in that part of the, of, uh, of the world. But yeah, sure. It was, it was, yeah, probably through some people for a loop. But I think on the whole, people were, are, were really supportive. I think I ran into that a bit more the next summer when I went to Egypt. I think people have a, a bit more of an idea of you know, Egypt being more of a dangerous place to be. I had a wonderful time there. But yeah, certainly ran into that a bit more when I um, when I let people know about plans for that summer. <laughs> but the funny thing is, you probably after a couple of these excursions to different countries, you probably got less of that. They're like, oh, she's going somewhere else. It was <laughs> it was like, it doesn't matter. We can't yeah. we can't tell her any different. Uh, and then my last question on that is, Besides the high acquittal rate in India, what's what's a big contrast you saw with that and the U.S.? I think just the, you know, pro probably the most obvious one, the one that comes to mind first is just a big cultural difference. You know, the, especially when you're talking about child abuse and when you're talking about gender-based harm and sexual abuse, different cultures just come at those issues very, very differently. One thing that I realized, especially upon going back um, and then coming back here is just that I think we're all sort of dealing with harm in this kind of punitive way, regardless of, of what culture we're operating in. And so, you know, the responses might be slightly different, but they're all basically telling the same story, which is, you know, if you do something bad, then you're gonna have to either pay someone money or, or go to prison. So I think we're all telling more or less the same story. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, it certainly looks different depending on where you are. And yeah, as you pointed out, the level at which people can do things with impunity and you know, corruption in the legal system, for instance, might be different mm -hmm. depending on where you are. We don't, obviously we don't get Indian news or some of the other countries where it's like that. And it's like a completely different world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I think I, I think it's actually, I'm, well, I mean, I've, I'm very fortunate that I've been able to travel, but, you know, I, I think if you can, it's, you know, I, well, I think travel in general is a wonderful thing for people to be able to do, but, but I, I also think, and, and this maybe sort of sounds perverse in a way, but 
visiting countries where you know you might not not necessarily have the same level of of rights that you do in the U.S. is it's very eye opening to be able to have that experience and then come back here and you know we certainly have a lot of issues stateside as well but you know being able to see that contrast is not something that everyone gets to experience and I think it's 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 important. Okay, so moving on to your time back in the uh, the colonies, as they say, <laughs> I guess that kind of spurred you. You said immigration law, correct? That's what you moved on to after that in the U.S.? Yes. I'm trying to backtrack. To, I, I had done a lot of refugee and asylum work in law school. And so that kind of translated well to the general immigration space when I got back to the U.S. So I, um, yeah, so I, I was sort of in a, in a weird place. Like, as I mentioned before, uh, that second trip to India was really eye-opening for me. I, I essentially realized that I'd spent, you know, the past three years, I'd gone to law school because I really cared about justice. And, and, and I sort of realized that I never really thought about what justice was. You know, we, we sort of, as I mentioned before, we kind of define justice as, you know, paying someone money or, you know, taking away someone's freedom for a certain amount of time. And, and I had this eye-opening experience where I realized that, you know, we don't actually ask people who've been harmed what justice is. And when we ask them that, we get a lot of different answers. And, and what if we, what if that was the starting point in trying to solve these, these issues and, and try to, to craft our own, you know, quote unquote justice system. So, so anyway, so I had this sort of big, you know, come to Jesus moment, whatever you want to call it, um, when I was in India the second time. And so I really had no idea what to do with that when I came back. I was very confused. <laughs> So I, you know, started doing immigration work by day, um, which was, you know, more in line with the more traditional legal experiences I'd had. And then I thought, I need to dive deeper into this restorative justice idea, this idea of justice looking differently, of it not being punitive, but it, you know, starting with asking the person who was harmed what justice means to them. And I just learned that this is this is a thing. Like this is a thing that existed and has existed for a long time and I had no idea what it was. So so I came back to DC, I was doing immigration work as my day job. And then I got involved in kind of the restorative justice movement by night. <laughs> um I, I I met, you know, talking before about meeting someone and kind of changes your trajectory. I uh I met a guy at a, a conference for this group called the Project for Integrating Spirituality, Law, and Politics. Mm. Yeah. And uh, so I, I ended up meeting a guy who, you know, who said, he, he was he was talking about restorative justice on a panel. And he said, you know, I'm, I'm trying to, you know, start applying these restorative justice principles and practices to the context of uh, gender-based harm. And if anyone's interested in that, let me know. And I thought, oh my God, this is what I was just, you know, what I just learned about in India and then came back and, and didn't know what to do with it. So so I kind of started uh, partnering with him, uh, kind of shadowing him. I mean, essentially what we started doing was providing the opportunity for people who were who had been harmed to access the restorative justice process, which mm-hmm. can look like a bunch of different things, but basically in the experiences that we've had, like sitting down with the person who caused harm and having a, a conversation. We call it a restorative dialogue, something like that. I would imagine that gets pretty emotional, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. it, it, it definitely does. 
Yeah, it's there's a lot of preparation that goes into it. We, you know, have conversations with the people involved for, you know, months and months sometimes before they're ready to, to come together. But we want to make sure that people know that that's an option if, if that's something that they want to pursue either in conjunction with or as an alternative to the criminal justice process. Mm-hmm. So, so I started doing that kind of on the side, along with doing immigration work, you know, kind of as my, as my day job. That's crazy. So how, <laughs> what were your days like then? Because if I'm thinking correctly, what, what does that even look like at night, restorative justice? So you were working kind of, I guess, pro bono for a lot of these cases for restorative justice? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, pretty much all, all pro bono. We're called facilitators. In, in a lot of contexts, they're paid, but not always. Mm-hmm. It kind of depends on the program. But me and my co-facilitator, it's fairly informal. You know, we don't have a, our own sort of organization that, that that I'm affiliated with anyway. So, yeah, so most of the time it's just kind of uh, pro bono and on a volunteer basis. Mm-hmm. That's pretty nice. So, I guess, how long did that schedule last that you were doing? <laughs> so, I was, let's see, it was about two years. Uh, a little over that I was kind of doing the immigration and then sort of DC-based restorative justice. And what was a typical weekday for you like that? (laughs) Well, I will say the one of the great things about the office that I was at where I was doing immigration work was that I had a very flexible schedule. Actually would take off Fridays, so I would have them free to do any, you know, any kind of restorative justice related meetings that we would have. So that was pretty wonderful. I was also taking some classes at the time um, at Eastern Mennonite University, which is right next to JMU, my yeah, alma mater. Yeah, I was about to say, that. Sort of one of the preeminent restorative justice programs in the country. So I was, you know, really fortunate to be able to just audit some classes there. So, so I was doing that sometimes in the afternoons. Yeah, we were um, doing some case prep for, you know, any restorative justice case that we had going on. And uh, yeah, and then during the day, I was at the at the firm office we were seeing clients writing some stuff reading some stuff a little known fact about me is i can remember useless knowledge that won't usually ever help but kara Mm. mentioned one time that you used to live in london and you would only have a (laughs) cup of noodle every day because you were trying to stay on budget Uh, oh yeah london is so expensive like you're 10 (laughs) Your tendencies and stuff like it just seems like an endless line of selfless. Like, where does it where does it come from? Like I said before, I started the interview. I, I know you said earlier why you wanted to become a lawyer, but what do you think working for like civil rights, immigration, such noble causes? What where do you pull that from? Were your parents like pushing that? Did you get that from school friends? That's interesting. That that last part of the question, I hadn't really thought about my sort of the role of my home life or school or my friends, the role that that played. I'll answer the way I was thinking first, and then maybe I'll I'll get into that second part because I think that's interesting. The quote that comes to mind or the idea that comes to mind when I think about this I, this question is something along the lines of, you know, there's no selfless good deed. Uh, and, and I think the reason I think about that is because I find that working in service of some cause or some mission is 
incredibly meaningful. And there is such a, my life is so enriched by that in the same way that it would be enriched by, you know, doing something that paid me, you know, just ungodly amounts of money, you know, like obviously the ceiling of a a salary for an attorney is pretty high, but I derive so much meaning in my life from, from being able to do work that I can even tangibly see making a difference. And, you know, and it sounds so trite, but I think it's because it's so true that that, I think that's what gives humans meaning. And in fact, just to bring it back to that professor I was talking about earlier in my senior seminar class, he had a three man search for meaning by Viktor Frankl. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with him. He, uh, he pioneered this branch of psychology called logotherapy, which is about like the role of meaning in like psychological well-being. Um, and it's been a while since I've read this book. Anyway, a, a big idea in this book is that if you are just pursuing happiness for your own sake, you'll, you'll basically never find it. And you only really find true happiness and meaning when you look outside yourself. And I just found that to be really true, I think. And so I, I, I and so I, I, it reminds me of that quote of the whole, like, no, you know, there's no selfless good deed, because even things that appear from the outside to be so selfless, I, I think that they provide the, the doer, so to speak, with, um, with so much. And, and so it feels actually selfish do this work in that way. So I, I don't feel as though it's really, even, even though I might have, have done work that appears to be really selfless, it, it feels really selfish in, in that way. Although, you know, that's dangerous. I mean, if, if, if you're doing this work just because it makes you feel good, you're not always going to feel good doing it. And oh, so you're basically is- lying to yourself at that point. I, I mean, I totally agree with you. Uh, I, I tell Kara this, or I used to tell Kara, and I think she agrees with me as time has gone down. There's no there's no actually selfless deed. And you explained it perfectly on saying that it obviously it makes you feel better helping other people because it makes you feel like a better person. It's like you're, yeah. you're adding to your, I would think of it as karma. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I could, I could certainly see that. And I think, yeah, I mean, I, I think that just humans in general have this drive to want to be a part of something that's bigger than themselves and, and this drive to contribute in some way. And so I think that that, you know, doing sort of public service work really taps into that part of your humanity, I think. Mm-hmm. And so I, yeah, so I consider myself really fortunate to be able to do that kind of work. But yeah, as, as I was saying, like, it, it can be all about you feeling good, you know, because you're not always going to feel good doing really any kind of job. Like, I, I just read this book last year called uh, so good they can't ignore you by Cal mm-hmm. Newport. He wrote like Deep Work and Digital Minimalist and then I have I have books. Deep Work on my yeah I don't have uh, it yet. Deep Work is great, but in So Good They Can't Ignore You, I, I think it's in it's in it's in this one. He basically talks about how it's kind of foolish to follow your passion into into work because so few people are going to be able to find a work that they do and honestly every day twenty four seven feel good and like their passion is being ignited when they're doing it like work is just not that way for like you know 99 points because it's called work. Of people exactly it's called work yeah and so you, you're just not always going to feel great no matter what you're doing but I think particularly in you know public service work can be tough like you're, you're a lot of times dealing with folks who are in a big crisis and it's a stressful situation and 
Like that can be tough. You're not always going to feel good or you're going to make a mistake and feel bad about that. Like you're just not always going to feel good. So it can't just be about you feeling good, you know? And that's something I would tell sort of a, a young idealistic lawyer, Erica, is that, you know, it, it can't always be about following the passion and, and feeling good, you know? But anyway, and I, I do want to make sure that though I circled back to that, the second part of your question, which was like about, about your family you asked me, and your so friends. my parents, my friends, my school. Yeah. Which is really interesting because I don't think I give this part of the answer a lot of like lip service when I, when I think about this, but so obviously I know you because I know your wife, Kara, because we went to the same high school, well, and also elementary and middle school. And we both had a sort of a non-traditional, well, it was very traditional in some ways, but, you know, non-traditional in that we had a religious, very religious upbringing and education. And, and, and I think, you know, there are a lot of, I think, folks who grow up in that background who, you know, develop some emotional baggage as a result, or, you know, maybe have some reasons to knock it for one reason or another. And I think that's, that's completely fair. And I think I have some of that. But, but I will say that one thing that, that growing up in that culture sort of instilled in me is this idea of service. And, Mm -hmm. and now that I'm talking about it with you, I'm cognizant of it. And I don't think I I really have been in, in the past. But yeah, being a servant, like being like giving of yourself, it was like a very important value in mm-hmm. that, in, in the school that we went to and in that culture that they tried to instill in us. And so I think it would be, yeah, it would be silly of me to say that that had nothing to do with it. Cause that was obviously really formative. I, I was forming. So it was a formative time in my life, uh, going to school and, and all of that. So yeah, I think that certainly does probably come into play a little bit too yeah I feel that through being raised Catholic Mm. like I feel like there's my conscience was built into me through Mm -hmm. that like Catholic guilt it's like I don't I don't connect it to that but Mm -hmm. it's just in me if that makes sense like Mm. it's in my decisions it's in my like I don't think it's necessarily in my thoughts but it's like be a good person golden rule yeah, I think it's it's interesting that, you know, as as much as you even might want to, I think, or at least this is my experience, you don't really ever get away from that. Yeah, I don't know. So I was reading a book, uh, Richard Alpert, he uh, wrote a book called Grits for the Mill. Uh, and, and in it, he, he talks about, you know, he's, he's kind of a big spiritual leader for a lot of people. And, and, you know, he, he talks about how, you know, we're all sort of headed to the same place, more or less, and we take different paths. And in his, you know, in, in this scenario, these paths are these different sort of religious frameworks that we use to get to, you know, enlightenment and whatever it is that you want to call it, you know, the universe, God, etc. And he talks about how his path is just sort of decided for him. You know, like he knew that like, yes, there are these other paths, but like this one is just mine. Like it was, maybe it was chosen for me, but it's just the one that resonates with me because of probably probably my upbringing I think that's what it is for most people is their upbringing but yeah I mean that's just like I've just been thinking about that recently like you know I I think a lot of people who have religious upbringings go through a phase where they are like I want a different path this one is not working and more recently I've sort of come around to this idea of like okay this is the framework that works for me that helps me understand these huge ideas that are almost like beyond comprehension 
And so this is just going to be the train maybe that's like most easily accessible for me to get there. Anyway. Kind of makes me think of, does our brain have an idea of, our collective conscious have an idea of sunk costs that we've lived so long and all of our experiences, what we've learned, who we know, that we're basically like, I, I can't give this up. Like, if I give this all up, like, what was the last 25 years for? Like, what was I working for? Like emotionally, thought process-wise, analytically, like, do I just give that up to do something completely brand new? And it's mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. I, I feel like everyone gets caught up in sunk costs and it kind of keeps someone on a linear path where they won't ever change. And I think that's on so many different levels. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think that's, I think that's right. That makes a lot of sense. This idea of, yeah, just like doing one thing one way for so long that, you know, why not just continue on that, on that same path? Yeah, and I think where... Richard Alpert is getting is sort of like, does the path even matter? <laughs> like, does the path matter? Well, I mean, obviously, we're talking specifically about like these religious ideas and you know how to how to find you know, peace or, or whatever you want to call it. But he's sort of like, does the path even matter? <laughs> Maybe it doesn't so much as 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 you know where it takes you. Yeah. So after working in Arlington, Virginia, for uh, I guess, immigration law. What made you switch? I guess, what made you get out? Oh, um, so yeah, it was sort of a couple things. I, I don't know if it was actually all that professionally motivated, but um, so I think my now fiance, Daryl, um, we had kind of I decided. I love Daryl. Yeah, Daryl's the best. Uh, for all your listeners out there, he is certainly my, he, he is more interesting than me also. So <laughs> you should have him on the podcast. So we had decided we were living in DC at the time and we decided that we wanted a change and, um, and he had wanted to move to Colorado since he was like a teenager. So, so we just kind of made a clean break and, and left everything and, um, and then eventually made it to Colorado and, uh, I, somewhere in the meantime, uh, was doing a bit of other contract work, dipped my toe into criminal defense work uh, post-conviction, which was really fun and new and different. Um, weird to call it fun. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah. I was, was going to comment on that, but uh, I mean, fun, I mean, it is fun yeah. because if you want to, if you want to circle back to young Erica, young Erica was watching the same thing when she was much younger on Law That's and Order. Right. She was defending the sleeping people. (laughs) The sleeping people, yes. Or the people who put the people to sleep. Yes, yes, exactly. Actually, that is correct. So Um, currently you're working in Colorado for the Poverty Law Project. So this is a little different angle from immigration. I mean, they're still having people move out of their houses. You're still working on basically keeping people where they want to belong. So do you think this is kind of uh, what your you would say your niche is? Like you mentioned criminal justice. What would you like to try out that you haven't tried out in your profession? And when I say profession, I just mean lawyer in general. Oh, interesting. What would I want to try out? Like, for example, uh, would you ever go back to DC to kind of uh, push like civil law? 
Mm. Um, so I'm, I, I like to leave everything open. So I, I don't think there's anything that I would, that I would sit here right now and say I would never do. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think that, um, I guess, so like in terms of, of like where I see myself in the future. Yeah. Do you see this job you have currently as something you'll be there for 10, 20 years, something like that? Um, I definitely could see that. Yeah. I think the, one of the really cool things about CPLP is that, so, I mean, just for context, like two years ago, there were, I think three employees or four. Now there's now, like 15, right? That's from what right. I count. That's right. Yeah. So it's really grown. It's, it's in a big growing phase and uh, it's kind of exciting to be a part of something like that. That's so like in its heyday. Yeah. Well, hopefully the heyday is, you know, is the heyday oh, is right. still to come, but well, I, I don't know. I mean, our job is to, defend people from eviction so in that way I kind of hope that we don't have a, a heyday so to speak. But, but from what I looked um, at it from the bios of lawyers you have some some big heavy hitters there that are like what did you say it's not volunteering but it's is it volunteering do they say that so well we do have a big community of pro bono lawyers who are not on staff with CPLP but we reach out to them to take cases pretty mm-hmm. frequently and they will attorneys who do any number of different things. I mean, they could be, they could be a criminal defense attorney or work in real estate or, you know, do corporate law or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And they will volunteer on the side for CPLP, which is how I got involved with CPLP was as, as a volunteer. So yeah, so we certainly do have a big community pro bono lawyers doing that. Um, But yeah, so, so I think it's, it's in a really interesting phase right now. It's, it's like the very startup like vibe, uh, which is, I think really cool to be able to be a part of something that I think is going to be really big in, in the future. And, and I also think maybe on kind of like a, a more zoomed out scale that I think that, that legal systems generally are, and maybe this is a bit hopeful sounding for others in the field, but I think that the legal system in, in general is heading in a really interesting direction. I think that the kinds of things that we were talking about earlier around, you know, shifting the paradigm from punishment to something like restorative justice to delving into the root causes of when, of why things are going wrong, of why harm is being committed, caring about rehabilitating people who cause harm, putting people who who've encountered harm, you know, in the driver's seat of, you know, this machine of justice, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I think we're moving in that direction. I am hearing more and more of those conversations. And so I'm I'm really excited to be, you know, to, to maybe be on, on the forefront of, of something like that. I mean, we're having those conversations in the eviction and housing context as well, like how to do this differently, how to do it better. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know what that's going to look like in the future, but I'm hopeful. And so I hope that like five, 10 years from now, I'm, I'm a part of, of this big change that I see happening everywhere. And the funny thing, when you were just explaining that, I was just imagining, I mean, everyone our age, that's kind of where they start to build on the experience. But the funny thing I see with you is I don't see you stopping being on the ground floor. You know what I mean? Like, obviously <laughs> you're going to get promoted and stuff like that, but 
just from this conversation with you and knowing you as a person, I don't think you're ever not going to support the little guy. Pro bono, the girl who's working like nights when she should be probably resting. Yeah, that's that's what I imagine. You're going to be some successful partner in a firm for some. Well, you, you don't I, you don't imagine that? No, I uh, <laughs> I appreciate the kind words. Um, yeah, no, I I yeah, I, I certainly hope to live up to that. I'm not even trying to compliment. Describe someone after near close to the interview. I really I'm not trying to like make them sound good. It's, like who they are. What's that? Frog and the scorpion story, but not in a negative. Frog and the scorpion. I don't know if I know that one. Uh, scorpion wants to get across the river. The frog says, I'll take you. He says, no, you're a scorpion. You're going to sting me. He's like, why would I do that? Like, I, we would both die. So frog takes the scorpion over, halfway over to the river. The scorpion stings him. And they both are floating down to the bottom of the river. And the frog says, why did you sting me? And the scorpion says, because I'm a scorpion. <laughs> yeah, now that you say that, that does sound kind of familiar. But I don't know that I'm making, am I the, am I the frog or the scorpion? Uh, the you're, scorpion. The, you're, you're the scorpion. But like I said, not in a negative but it is, but not in whatsoever. A bad way. Yeah. Yes, yes. I see what you're saying. It's like people, yeah, they have this innate sort of nature. I guess that's an oxymoron, but yeah. I well, it's just like we were talking about. You don't want to get rid of your past, your in your intellect, your feelings, emotions that you've built so much up of. Mm -hmm. We've answered where you think you're going to be. What is something that your parents did that you might do differently with your children? So something that they did that I might do differently. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I well, I just have to say, I just have to brag on Eric and Karita first before I answer this question, because they really were and are such good, they parented me in such a like, kind of, I think, unique way. They like, I, I, I don't know, I, I think that when I envision myself being a parent, I envision um, like saying no a lot just out of, and I don't know, you'll have to tell me as a parent if you, if this resonates, but saying no a lot, like out of um, like almost like reflex, like, oh no, you're a kid, you're, you're a kid. And so you're like automatically probably going to be doing something that's like stupid or dangerous that you shouldn't be doing. So I need to like say no a lot. And I, I feel like I'm going to do that even if I try not to. And my parents did not do that. Or at least that's not my recollection. Um, not that they let us run wild and I mean, you know, they, they managed to, I, I was a least child. So like, you know, it, was, <laughs> it wasn't anything crazy, but they just really let us be us in this. And I, I have an older sister. So. Um, yeah, they really just let us be us in this way that I don't know that I see other, that I don't necessarily see modeled a lot. Um, yeah, so I don't know. I, I hope that I can do that. And I, I think in terms of like, gosh, I don't know, something that maybe we would do differently. Um, I'm going to take my kids camping. Um, so we, I did not grow up camping. Um, there you I don't go. Think, camping. I don't think I camped at all. And uh, yeah, and then I found myself, you know, at I guess I was 29, uh, car camping for six, seven, eight months at a time. Um, and 
it was, uh, yeah, I think it'd be a fun experience to have as a family. And, and so I want to, I want to raise my kids to be little outside children and to, yeah, to just have that experience. I think it'd be valuable. Who knows? I was a huge germaphobe as a child. So honestly, my parents probably suggested it. And I was like, God, no. <laughs> that's funny because when you first started your explanation, I was just like, maybe that's why she went to India and like wants to travel so much was her fact that their parents never said no. You know, my, my, my sister and I, maybe we were, I don't know. I was certainly a rule follower. I mean, I, I followed rules for a living. So I, I was a rule follower as a child. So maybe it was easy for my parents to do that. But uh, yeah, I can understand different, why different parenting styles exist, certainly. Very true. Well, that's it, madam. You did an amazing job. Thank you much, Michael. Thank you much. Yes. I think uh, that sounds like something to put on the mug. Thank you, much. <laughs> Thank you, much. <laughs> yeah, it was fun. If you like this week's episode of People More Interesting Than Me, please follow me on Apple Podcasts so you won't miss out on more episodes like these.